The Money Show. Small business. With Pablo Fatidis. Pavlo Vitidis, it's said so beautifully, pronounced so wonderfully. Uh, Pavlo Vitidis, good evening to you. Nice to have you with us this evening. Have a good holiday. Have a good holiday. I did, Bruce. It was a very interesting holiday. I managed to put about uh, four and a half thousand kilometers uh, behind me, looking at towns, looking at what's going on around the country, seeing signs of such incredible excitement around there's so much happening that is so positive and in the moment that you then blink you open your eyes and suddenly realize that we still have a long long way to go yeah and the first thing bruce the first thing i really need to just get it out and i'm sorry i have to get it out with you <laughs> All right. is it's rail to road story <sighs> the road from johannesburg all the way down to the eastern cape has been invested heavily over the last, I'd say, 10 years. And the quality of those roads and the investment that has been poured into them is incredible. We truly have, and I travel extensively around the world, we truly have incredible road networks. And Bruce, the road from Craddock to Port Elizabeth left me in a situation where halfway in that journey, I lost count overtaking over 82, 26-wheeler, 40-ton of tipper trucks carrying manganese from the north of Kimberley, destroying the town of Craddock that is unserviceable because it has no road network left, taking truckload by truckload by truckload parallel to a railway line completely empty of any carriages. It is... It is madness. Uh, it's absolutely, it's, inf- it's infuriating. I mean, and it's such a, it's such a constraint on everybody and business. Um, and it's a, such a catastrophic failure. It really is. Transnet does a great job on its pipelines. Transnet does a great job on the Sishan Saldana line. But Transnet uh, uh, needs to get its act together on, on, the, on the routes. I mean, these are the arteries of the country. And they could, uh, you know, if you've got trade flowing on those arteries, um, we would unclog the economy immediately. I'm going to stop with analogies. Now, listen, talk to me about what's holding back small businesses right now. Because a lot of people, I mean, you go to these small towns and there's lots of energy and activity, and that's great because they have to make a plan. But a lot of people are, yeah, as always, despondent and, and are a bit afraid. I mean, rail to road is one thing. Um, I suppose the other part of what's holding people back is uh, supply chains. I mean, it's not just a local problem. It's it's a big global problem too. No, it's everywhere. It's right around the world at the moment. And, you know, it's everything from uh, computer chips to steel. The steel issue is a massive issue in South Africa at the moment. You know, we have a reasonably well-industrialized economy. And I'm saying industrialized from the point of view of services. So the mining industry is booming. Commodities are booming. Commodities, when you service a mine, when you service a mine site, you're using big trucks and big pieces of plant and equipment. You're using warehouses. Things get broken and bashed and damaged. And in order to fix, maintain, repair, upkeep a mine site and keeping it safe, keeping it efficient, we have a very extensive net of industrial businesses involved in the servicing of that a big piece of plant and equipment, that mine site. 
And Bruce, a lot of it requires steel. And there's hardly any steel available. The steel that is available has been really concentrated. And everything from people who make fences and install fences all the way through to uh, fixing conveyor belts, all the way through to establishing uh, new warehouses and shelving, there is a massive, massive steel shortage. And I had such an interesting debate with uh, a very well-established fencing business recently, second generation. They were doing incredibly well, obviously pre-COVID. COVID arrived, and now they're in a situation where they simply cannot get wire. And wire is a fundamental element, obviously, of the fencing sector, the fencing industry. And I sat down with this business owner and I said, well, what are you doing about it? And he said, please, can you link me to sources of steel? And I attempted to, but sources of steel don't have steel either. <laughs> and he said, what do I do to preserve my business? And I said, well, what are you doing to preserve your business? And he says, well, you know, my sales team is out there. He's got 16, 16 people involved in sales and business development. They're traveling and visiting customers all around the country. We have, we have on average about 80, 80, 90 odd million rands worth of business that we cannot service because we don't have steel. And, and we're losing that business to competitors that might have some stock or manage to get some stock. And Bruce, it was so frustrating because the essence of any business is the customer. Forget the product. Forget what's happening internally in the business. When you're in a situation where your supply chain has been compromised, and this is facing many businesses, you need to do what you need to do to hold on to your customers. So immediately, in this instance, he insisted that he needed the raw materials to manufacture the fencing. He insisted on needing to manufacture the fencing because if he were to import fencing, he would find himself in a situation where he would make no profit. But he has the argument. If you're going out there taking orders, creating false hope for customers who desperately need the fencing, not able to supply, you lose the customer in any event so that when wire and steel gets back into the country, there's no fencing to be made because there's no demand for fencing because you've lost your customers. And in cases where you're supply chain is broken as a manufacturer, you have to figure out to import the complete product. Rather, make no profit over the next six months and hold on to those customers because the imports will be back. It's so interesting. I, 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 it's such a sad conversation with uh, my local bike shop owner this week. I was out on my bicycle, which is a rare occurrence, and it was fabulous. Um, and about the, as far as I can get from home, um, my pedals went dodgy and I needed help. And so I nursed the bicycle back through all the back ways and to my bike shop. And I was like, oh, good, I'm here. Noel will save me. And um, as I got there, I see the, the windows are papered over. And Noel is standing outside, sort of taking a, a, a long and meaningful look at his bike shop. And I'm like, Noel, what, what are you doing? He says, you know the economy. I have to shut down. 
He took one look at me, dragged me inside, and all of his um, shop fittings and everything was spread across the floor. He was getting ready to pack them up, and he told me the story of how uh, one of the primary reasons, not only are fewer people cycling and fixing bicycles, and you don't have things like the Cape Epic and and, and the 947, and you know, people are making a plan, but it's just you know people aren't fixing bicycles in the same way. And uh, those that are are getting frustrated because as a small player, he can't get hold of the parts he needs in order to do the fixes that he needs to do. And so his customers are going to bigger shops that do have um, the stronger supply chains. And it was just so sad. But he goes, you know what? And there's another bike shop coming here. It'll be here in six to eight weeks. You'll be fine. Don't worry about it. They're taking over my staff. You know, they'll be fine. That's the most important thing. And he's going off to go and think about what he wants to do next. And he says, you know what? This business has been good to me. It's fine. And it's like I felt traumatized for the guy. Uh, but his resilience and his ability to be philosophical about, well, that happens. And it's been great for 10 years. And he could carry on dragging it on for another year or 18 months. The economy might turn. Things may improve. But what if they don't? He'll be heavily in debt, and so he chooses not to. Um, and I think it's, he's got a really productive mindset in that way. So his lease was coming to an end, so he called it. And it was good that he's done it, because he'll find something else. And I think that's really important. He's not going to become a, a COVID zombie. He's not going to become a victim huh. of the environment, which I think is good. Yeah, and, and you know, COVID zombies have, have become a big thing. In the very first six months of lockdown, what happened when everyone had to go and work remotely, work from home? It created, Bruce, and, and not much has been written about this, surprisingly, because it's literally, it literally is a consistent issue across 60% of businesses that I'm speaking with. It created what, what, I, what I refer to as a COVID zombie, where staff went home, employees went home, started to work from home, and all of a sudden, found themselves to be incompetent. And the context within which their day-to-day work was delivered was in an office space or in a factory floor or in a warehouse, wherever the place of work would have been. You had colleagues around you. You might have leaned over from your desk, peering at your colleague's desk to remind yourself how to do something or get something done. And for a period of about six months or so last year, from April, it seemed as if people who had been very competent, very able, very capable of doing their jobs, doing their work, performing their duties, and and thriving in doing so, put themselves or found themselves out of context and in an environment where they just weren't able to deliver work. What it did is it tested all the management theories and structures that existed across most businesses. And to the horror of many companies, they found that they actually were managing performance by activity. In other words, arrive at work at this time, leave at that time. I need to see you. I need to have an eye on the floor. I need to see who's busy, who's not, as opposed to output and activity in terms of an output, a measured outcome. What they then did during the course of last year, many companies had to adopt extensive digitization. They introduced it in how they communicate with their teams. They introduced it on how they collaborate. And slowly but surely, they started to introduce a whole lot of productivity softwares as well. And in that, it spurred a massive insecurity in amongst team members who never understood the bigger picture, who were nervous about the bigger picture, 
who, and generally most people have a resistance to technology, were apprehensive about what the technology meant, weren't sure if they were being spied on, weren't sure what the real reasoning was behind this, and went into a space in a place of malicious compliance with the new technologies. That immediately took leaders from the bridge of their ship, where they should be leading the direction of their business, Bruce, right back down into the engine room, where they're involved now, consumed in day-to-day -day activities with everything being delegated up. It's a big issue, and unless we as business owners resolve that, we will lose out on the growth opportunities already emerging from now to the end of the next financial year. Pablo Fatidis from Auric Business Accelerated. The big things holding small businesses back. Mostly, it's your own sort of thinking around the way in which your business is evolving. And you know, relying on the tech is one thing, but if you, if you forget that it's people who are implementing the tech and using the tech, you're going to come short. You really are. Thanks, Pablo.